You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome back for episode 41 of the Common Descent Podcast. You are in for a huge subject, an awesome subject, uh, one we're very excited for, because it is all about the evolution of whales. Whales. Uh, Which was suggested, requested by a lot of people. Liz and Alexandra on Twitter. We have Lydia, one of our patrons, and Ryan, who requested on Facebook, and it came up on the survey as well. Yeah, this is this is the most requested topic after the birds that we discussed in episode 37. As well it should be, because this is a, we've been looking forward to this one. Oh, so we're going to go through it. We're going to discuss today, we can't do everything on whales. There's too much. It's a very dense topic. There's a lot of cool stuff to go into. But we're going to focus today on the evolution side of it. Where do whales fit in the tree of life? And how did they get to looking the way they are today? What features developed and what processes did they go through to go from living on the land, spoiler alert, to living in the water? And so that's what we're going to focus on. There's a lot more we could talk about on our specific whales that we have today because they're weird and cool in their own way, separate from the fossil whales that we're going to discuss, but we can only touch on so much. Yes, this is one of the fossil record's most iconic evolutionary transitions. Birds and whales. Birds and whales were actually the two that we used for that one game we, we created for Darwin Day. Yes, it was. At the museum back in the day. Mm-hmm. Those, those were our two transition games that we set up was birds and whales because it's just so evocative. So this will be a fun one. It's going to be a good blog post, too. Oh, it's going to have so many cool pictures, guys. But before we can move on, we have announcements. Our first announcement is one we're always excited when we get this kind of announcement. We have a new patron. And when you join us on the Patreon, if you enter at a certain level, we'll shout your name out here on this here podcast. Welcome to the Patreon, Brandon. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brandon. Welcome to the fold. You are now part of the the mass. We got to come up with a name for our followers. Dear we listeners, should. come up with a name for yourselves. Yes, if you come up with a, a clever wordplay, we will absolutely use it. Let's let we'll have a name for for our accumulated listeners. Yes. Also, this is the first episode released in August. So a reminder that every month of the podcast is brought to you in large part by the donations of our patrons, which keep things going. Actually, we should mention that if you are a patron, we put up a poll recently. Oh, yes. Yes. We have reached a couple of interesting milestones, and we want your input on what you think we should use your wonderful, wonderful money to do next. So head over to Patreon or head to our Facebook or Twitter where we recently posted links to the poll. Find that poll, weigh in. And if you're not a patron, now's a good time to start if you were thinking about it because you get to vote. So join join the decision making. Brandon, you have your first mission if you choose to accept it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We also have a cool little announcement. This was a little thing that happened off to the side. One of my friends also runs a podcast uh, that works at the aquarium with me 
And his name is Matt. Very cool guy. He shares my passion for alligators and has been doing alligator and crocodilian handling and public education for years and years now. He's awesome. But he and his friend Tony have been running a podcast called Cruise Geeks. They like to go on multiple cruises and they have made a podcast to give you the ins and outs of kind of tips and tricks to enjoying and best taking advantage of a cruise. But he also throws in cool little science lessons because he is a science educator. And he brought me in on episode 26 of their podcast that came out July 28th and uh, got to answer some questions about fossil sharks. Uh, Yeah, it was very, very cool to get to talk with him. And so if you want to take a listen, we'll put a link up there. It was a lot of fun being on there and I appreciated it. Our final bit of announcement has to do with one thing we've already mentioned, but we wanted to re-up it and give you a little more detail now that we're getting a little more detail about what will be happening early this September. We will be making our first public appearance at DragonCon. Woohoo! So we will be on a few panels. Both of us will be on one panel. Uh, the Science of Jurassic Worlds is the name yes, of that one. It'll be that's going to be fun. Sunday evening, so the schedule says at the moment. And there will be two more panels that David will be participating in. He got mm-hmm. to be a, a guest professional this time, which means he's uh, cameoing in a few other panels. Those will be the Stock Photo Science, which is a neat sounding one, and Geology and Science Fiction, which is basically what it sounds like. Yes, very excited. Yes. Those. So if you are going to Dragon Con and you have a ske- when you get that schedule, look out for Will Harris and David Moscato. It'd be W. Harris and D. Moscato on the schedules. More details coming once we know... It's tentative. All this is tentative scheduled yes, now. It is so. not set in stone, but these these things should at least be happening. If their times might change or who all is on them might change, we'll see. Yes. So keep an eye out, and we will hopefully see some of you at DragonCon. Now, every episode for you who have been listening, you already know. But for you who are joining us, we think it is important to keep up to date with science news. So every episode, we intro a couple news pieces, go over briefly, discuss, and just kind of keep us all up to date. And to start us off, we have David here in the office. David, would you like to take it away? Thanks for having me, Will. I'm going to talk about bugs. Bugs. This is a study that came out recently investigating the question of how ants evolved that wonderful striking difference between queens and workers. Cool. So as our listeners are probably aware, many ants are eusocial. And as part of that, they have a built-in caste system. Yes. You are born to be a worker or to be a queen, or eventually you become a queen. And once you're a queen and once you're a worker, you have a job to do. And you can't do another job. Because biologically, they are different. Their bodies are designed differently. Yes. Worker ants can't reproduce. Yes. (laughs) Queens only reproduce. (laughs) That is their thing, is they consistently reproducing this varies from species to species but in general queens are the reproductive ants the workers are not this is a study done by vikram chandra et al in science that looked to see can we find where that difference is what correlates with that difference and can we get a sense of how that difference might have come about so they looked at several different ant species hoping to find a genetic signal that was different in 
reproductive versus non-reproductive ANDs. And what they found is a gene that codes for what they call in the press release the ant version of insulin. So huh. basically their version, and it probably regulates metabolism much like it does in humans. The gene that codes for this ant insulin, they found, is consistently upregulated, right, produced in high quantities in queens. Now, this is interesting, and it makes sense because if you have a molecule, a, a peptide in this case, related to metabolism, related to your food intake, that makes sense that it's linked to reproduction because if you're not getting enough food, you shouldn't be reproducing. You don't have enough resources. There's a connection there. So then they said, they said well, well, let's figure out how this affects ants that aren't broken into queens and workers. So they looked at a clonal raider ant, a species called Oocerae biroi, which does not have distinct queens and workers. All the ants go through phases of reproductive activity and phases of brood care. So they reproduce for a while, then they have larvae and they take care of their larvae. They switch between the two. Yeah. What they found was when they introduced larvae to ants who were in their reproductive phase, the adults produced less insulin in response to the presence of larvae. And if the ants were brood caring, if they were caring for their larvae and the, the researchers took the larvae away, the ants would produce higher insulin. So the presence or absence of larvae was directly correlated to their insulin levels. And then they said, all right, well, what effect does the insulin have? So they got a bunch of brood-caring ants that were taking care of their larvae, left the larvae there, and injected insulin into those ants and found that their ovaries became more active, oh. kicking into a reproductive phase. Yep. So what this is suggesting is that insulin levels are related to reproductive ability— and they are responsive to the environment. Are there babies around? No. All right, kick up insulin and let's make babies. Do we have babies? Okay, cool. Stop reproducing, lower yep. the insulin. And they found a bunch of variation in insulin, like natural variation, right? Some, some ants naturally have higher insulin. Some ants naturally have lower insulin. But they generally found this trend. So then they said, could this be <laughs> an analog for the evolution of the caste system? Could it be that once you have insulin signaling responsive to larvae, you have this cycling back and forth like we see in the modern day raider ants they looked at. If you have already, you have variation in the ants, if you have ants with high enough insulin that they can override the larval signal, that's it. I was born with high insulin levels high enough that even when there's babies around, I'm going to continue reproducing. Mm -hmm. Whereas unusually low insulin level ants would be hypersensitive to environmental cues like larvae presence or even maybe other stuff that they might stay under reproductive. Once you have that separation and instead of the ants switching back and forth between reproducing and brood care, if you have a separation that came out just because some are high insulin, some are low insulin, now you have all the time reproducers and all the time brood carers. And if that is working for your colony, then you will get the wonderful 
an introduction of selective pressure. Yes. They're suggesting this could be an example of at least one way, because the eusocial caste system has evolved multiple times. Yes, it has. At least one way you could get from one single species to distinct forms based on reproductive phases. What I really like about this example is it is it, it mirrors speciation. You know, speciation is when one species becomes multiple species and is typically triggered by a divide of some sort. Somehow you have separated these species from being able to reproduce with each other. It could be an actual physical divide or it could be that we were apart long enough or we were on opposite ends and we started acting weird that I don't find your mating dance sexy anymore. <laughs> so we're not going to mate anymore and then we continue to become different. So we're no longer mixing genes. This is like speciation but within a species because now it is the divide is the insulin. As long as you're able to switch back and forth it'll be pretty stable but as soon as one stops doing that it could throw it off to where you're able to separate which is weird and fascinating. It's a lot like sexual dimorphism. Yes. That if you have slightly different pressures on the males versus the females, they will, even though they're remaining the same species, they will evolve distinctly from each other. Yes. Uh, but they're also under pressure to continue reproducing with each other. So some aspects of their anatomy and behavior are going to be dramatically different while they remain the same species. This is also a really cool example of looking at... This is something that comes up a lot, and it can be confusing to, to say this animal looks like it represents an earlier stage of mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. other one. These clonal raider ants that don't have... That, that go by phases instead of by those distinct uh, queens versus workers aren't the ancestors of the other ants. No, they're still doing the thing that we suspect might be what the ancestors of those other ants did. So we and I said it's an analog. Yes, we have a species today that gives us a clue as to what those ancestral species might have looked like. Well, my bit of news is actually hearkening back to our last episode. Last episode, we discussed the awesome island of Madagascar. And in it, you mentioned one very cool creature called the I.I. Yes. And I have some news about the I.I. Now, the I.I. is the very strangest lemur. <laughs> it has those long fingers, big eyes, big ears, and buck rodent-like teeth. And it is so bizarre that it's been a focus of study. But this mo recent research is looking at the fact that when the I.I. was originally found, it was mistaken as a squirrel by looking at the skull. Uh, or at least a rodent closely related to squirrels. So similar in shape. Now this research is done by Philip J.R. Morris et al. And is in the biology letters. And I'm reading it, the press release from phys.org released by the University of York. They uh, have taken a closer look using 3D analysis to figure out why does this primate look so much like a rodent. So bit of history. I mentioned that... IIs were initially confused as to what they were. Back in 1780 was when the first two II specimens were returned to Europe by French explorers, first uh, investigating Madagascar. And it was initially classified into the rodentia, rodents. It was it had the teeth, it had the same shape even as a rodent. 
and it was thought to be closely related to squirrels. Now, this is not as weird as it sounds because eye-eyes do have ever-growing incisors, just like rodents do. So they're, it's like our fingernails. Their teeth just constantly grow and wear down through use. Wow, they are strikingly convergent. It is very convergent, and this is what they were wanting to investigate. Why are these so convergent? Why is the eye eye so much like a rodent that it does not resemble its close relatives? You know, it basically this convergent evolution has overwritten its family traits to make it look like a different group, and they wanted to figure out what those pressures were. Now, to do this, they took micro CT scans high-resolution scans to make 3D images of the skulls of both groups, uh, eye-eyes and squirrels and various other rodents as well and a few other primates. And using these 3D images, they placed what they call 3D coordinates, which are basically they were able to put those images into the computer and place points at specific features on the skull. This is 3D landmark analysis, which is my favorite statistical analysis because it's what I did. And I also love it because it's a visual physical thing. And this would then let the computer analyze the shape of all these skulls. They used mostly specimens from uh, natural history museums. So it was actually a really cool example of using already existing specimens and just doing a new analysis on them. What they found was that they're very closely shaped, and the teeth are one reason, but their jaw is also a big similarity, and the features that are showing up in this analysis are features needed for high bite force. And oh. so it appears that the reason squirrels and eyes look so similar is because they both needed a strong bite, and to get a strong bite with the teeth they have, there is a very, a very similar skull design. Interesting. This reminds me of comparing elephants to large dinosaurs like sauropods. Indeed. You start to see a lot like foot, the, the, the shape of the feet and the legs, the differences they are inheriting from their mammalian versus reptilian ancestors are less important for very specific features than simply supporting your giant body. Yes. Evolution says, listen, I understand you're a mammal. You want to be all mammally, but this is, if you want to be gigantic, you need sauropod <laughs> feet. This is the only way to do it. Well, it's the same way that like architects throughout human history have discovered that the arch is a phenomenal tool for building uh, structures yes. because the arch is structurally one of the best shapes out there. That's just physics. That's just math. And math affects biophysics as well. Biomechanics. So if you want to do something, there are a certain number of shapes that are going to be the best at doing that, very likely. So these jaws have evolved a set of similar features yes. constrained by their purpose, their use. And the cool thing is, is that they're for different purposes, but for the same solution to these different purposes. The strong bite of a squirrel is to bite through nuts to crack open the nuts that we see them eating and burying. For the eye-eye, it's to bite through bark because they are grub hunters. They're analogous to the woodpecker where they are tapping the wood, listening for hollow spaces, biting a hole in it, and then fishing it out with their long finger. That's awesome. It's really cool. And they are hoping that further analysis will reveal more about the functional pressures and show exactly how strong convergent evolution can be to overpower 
familial resemblance. So that's some fun discussion about evolutionary processes. Let's talk about something weird. <laughs> Weirder than an eye-eye? Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the phrase 30,000-year-old worms, and I don't mean fossils. <laughs> okay. So there is a study that just came out by A.V. Shatilovich et al. in the journal uh, called the Dothraki Biological Sciences. Dothraki. Dothraki Biological <laughs> Sciences. <laughs> there are many news articles about this. The one that I have chosen is at Smithsonian News by Malin Sully, which will be on the blog post along with the rest of these. So this team of Russian scientists has claimed to have found nematodes, roundworms, in soil from a few tens of thousands of years ago that are still alive. Wow. So let's talk about dormancy. A lot of organisms go dormant, right, to weather out harsh situations. The most famous animals that do this are probably tardigrades. Yeah, nowadays they've definitely gotten that. That notability. Water bears. Yeah, they're on Hollywood now. They've made it to the yes. big screen. Yes, they attack superheroes. <laughs> they do. They try to eat Ant-Man. <laughs> uh, they go into a state of dormancy. They chill. And then when the conditions get better, they come back. Tardigrades have been able, have been shown to be able to do this to survive as long as 30 years in their torpor, in their dormant state. Nematodes, roundworms, have been shown to be able to do this for... Uh, up to 30 to 40 years. A few groups of organisms have been shown in the past to be able to do this at time periods that take them back into the fossil record. Yes. However, every case of this so far has either been a microbe mm -hmm. or that one really cool case of the seeds. Yep, that's what I was from, thinking I think of. it was Siberia. That, were, mm -hmm. that germinated after 30,000 years in the permafrost. <laughs> it's just, man, oh, it's sunny now. Okay. Yeah. All right. Time to go. It must be an interglacial. <laughs> this, if true, he said, adding emphasis, mm -hmm. would be the first case of a multicellular animal surviving long-term cryobiosis. What a cool word. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. So nematodes are roundworms. There are tens of thousands of species of nematodes around the world. A huge portion of them are parasitic. Uh, a lot of diseases that, that, that may be familiar to you are caused by roundworms, yeah, by nematodes. Like, like the, the famous dog heartworms are, are roundworms and stuff like that. But there are some that just live in soil. These researchers looked at permafrost deposits from the Colima River lowland, and they found two different genera of nematodes in two different places. One case in a ground squirrel burrow from the late Pleistocene, just over 30,000 years ago. And the other in drill cores into sediment that is about 40,000 years old. They were stored at sub-zero temperatures for a while, defrosted, and eventually started moving <laughs> and when they gave them food, they would eat it. Now, it is not unheard of, as we said, for an animal, for an organism to survive tens of thousands of years in the permafrost. Yes. We have seen this before. We've never seen it with a multicellular animal, which means this is an extraordinary claim 
And what do we say about extraordinary claims, children? They require extraordinary evidence. Yes, they do. It is very possible that there is contaminant here, foreign contaminant, that they have that these are modern animals that somehow, you know, got in there and the researchers made a mistake and didn't notice it. The researchers make the point that they followed procedures to ensure no contamination, which, okay, sure, we will take them at their word. Yep. All right, you did your best, I'm sure. And that the depth at which they found these is too deep for modern nematodes to go in that soil. All right. That in that region, the permafrost, because of the, the soil only thaws out so much, nematodes typically don't go down more than three feet or so. And the two deposits they got this out of were 15 feet underground and 100 feet underground. Woo. So they're suggesting it is, we did all the stuff we were supposed to do to avoid contamination, and it's unlikely that these nematodes would have gotten down there in the first place. So this is a cool thing. <laughs> it really is. Like once you, This is like a sci-fi movie ready to be set up of the thing thawing out and waking up, you know, it's the plot of so many sci-fi channel movies. Yes. It's it's fascinating if this is true cuz that completely uh would have huge effects on the the evolution of these roundworms if they're able to freeze and wake back up after thousands of years and just continue their lineage. Yeah. Which is awesome, but it's also definitely a a topic that needs to be tested again you know we need to see if we can find further examples of this uh because this is big this is this is not a small feat for an animal to be able to do yes so we will keep an eye on this this story as it develops as they say (laughs) now my next news piece is about extinct stuff so the these are, are there fossils in your news piece? Today? There are fossils in Did this one. Did you bring fossils to this paleontology <laughs> podcast? They're all dead. They've been dead for a while. <laughs> we were going back on brand. My next one is about sharks and their teefers. Now, oh. sharks, as many of you know, do not fossilize very well because they're made out of squishy, squishy cartilage, but their teeth sure do. But when looking at the teeth, there is an interesting turnover within kind of the shark dominant groups from before the end of the Cretaceous and after. And so these researchers want to try to figure out what might cause that, and they think it was indeed the KPG extinction. Now, this research is done by Mohamed Bazi et al. in Current Biology. The article is in Science Daily by the Uppsala University. To set things up, we kind of have to give a little background on shark groups. So the two main groups that we're talking about here are the lamniforms and the carcarioniforms. These are two of the big major groups of sharks. Uh, lamniforms include things like great white and the mako and in the past uh, your megalodon. But today, the carcarioniforms, they're the biggest group and they include tiger sharks, hammerheads, cat sharks. Uh, black tip reef sharks and a various variety of other odd sharks in there. So, like a huge variety, they contain the bulk of the diversity of sharks today. But that's not how it always was. 
back during the time of the giant terrible lizards, <laughs> during the especially the Cretaceous, the lamniforms were the dominant, at least diversity-wise, group of sharks. And the cacariniforms were kind of in the, the shadow of that group. But after the KPG extinction, we see a shift into a more modern structure where the lamniforms are not gone by any means, but they're not the, the same diversity. So they wanted to look into it, and the only fossils they really got are the teeth, because sharks continually shed and replace their teeth, and they are hard like our teeth, so they fossilize well. And so we don't have... We do have other shark fossils. There are rare times where shark vertebrae and jaws will fossil, but it's not common. So mostly you have teeth. So they looked through lots of teeth. Lots and lots and lots of teeth. It just... There's a reason that shark teeth fossils are the things people give away for free at places. Because you can just pick them up at the beach or at the riverbed. And they analyzed the morphological variation, also known as the disparity of the teeth through this transition, through the end of the Cretaceous and into the KPG extinction and after. So this range on either side of that 66 million year old event. And they use analytical techniques. Now, they were trying to measure the way these teeth uh, occupied morphospace. So the shapes that they showed. And that's what disparity means is the variety of shapes shown within a group. You know, so high disparity means you have a whole bunch of different body shapes or tooth shapes or you know physical features and lifestyles. The other term we're going to have to talk about is diversity because that's the counter side of that coin is how many species do you have? So high diversity means lots of species. Low diversity means low species. High disparity means lots of body shapes. Low disparity means not many body shapes. And sometimes those go together, sometimes they don't. And that was one of the things they were looking at here, is how did those two things get affected by the KPG extinction in the two groups? And they found something weird. The disparity doesn't really change. Interesting. During this massive extinction, they don't really lose a variety of teeth shape after, you know, from before and after that extinction event. So... What this could mean is that this is a time where the diversity of the sharks was, as they said, decoupled or became disconnected from the disparity. So shark species were indeed decreasing, but we weren't seeing a lack of diversity. So you weren't, so you were losing Our disparity of species, but the ones you had, you hadn't lost niches. Exactly. So they were still doing all the same jobs, quote unquote that they had been doing, but with fewer species. So if you have to downsize your your company, you fire a bunch of people, you don't get rid of any positions, you've just reduced the number of people in each department. You still need a cleaning crew, you still need an advertising crew, you still need sales, you still yes. need HR. But you may only have one person in each now. So this is an interesting dynamic. Now, like we said, they don't always go together, but very often, higher species count is higher disparity because you have more types of whatever <laughs> group you are to do more things, but not always. And this is one of those cases where it didn't. Now, it did find that there was a difference in response to the extinction between the two groups. The lamniforms seem to have a selective extinction within their diversity of species. And then there was a proliferation of 
the Kakarian forms. So we did see that they kind of just shifted and one took over from the other as the other was hit slightly harder for diversity of species, but not variety. Interesting. So perhaps you had, you know, these sharks are competing for similar niches. And for a long time, one group just had more species and held on to that dominance. And then when the whole ecosystem was sh- shook up mm-hmm. by this major extinction event, it the other group managed to get the upper hand when it came time to rediversify. And one of the things they suggest is that the cacariniforms often were occupying mid-trophic, you know, not top of the food chain, kind of mid-level. You're a predator, but you're not the top predator. You're still eaten by other right. stuff. And they had been kind of occupying that mid-level during that time. And a lot of them still do that today. You know, a lot of like things like hammerheads, a lot of those are not at the top of the food chain in the ocean. You know, so that's not completely changed. But many of the lambdaforms were the top. You know, a lot of those were the big, aggressive, fast-moving, you know, energetic animals. And as happens with many mass extinctions, apex predators typically do not fare well. And if yeah. the lambdaforms were hit and the big marine reptiles were hit, this opens up space for the little guys to move up and take over a bit and kind of station themselves in that new place. Food could also affect it. They say that they need to still get a better understanding of the diversity and patterns of sharks and how it affects their diet and vice versa to better understand how these morphologies really um, affect the groups. But another another subject of science that is constantly being looked at and looked at again is how mass extinctions affect all the different levels of your ecosystems. Yeah, because you can have com- you can have regime changes that just kind of happen on the side because it's st- it's affecting things top to bottom on the globe when those big die-offs happen. And that's the news. And so we'll wrap up there and very soon jump right in to our subject of whales. We'll dive right in. Dive right in. Splash. (laughs) Whales are the cetaceans. That's their their scientific name uh, for their group. And they include all those tailed aquatic mammals that you can think of, of the flippers, the big fluked tail, and no back legs. As opposed to seals and sea lions swimming yeah. with their back feet. There's one other group that has taken the same body shape, which is the manatees and dugongs, but they are their own group. The features that typically group together the cetaceans are streamlined bodies, highly compressed neck. They don't have very flexible and movable necks for some of them. There are a few that, or for most of them, there are a few who have actually very flexible necks, the river dolphins and things like that. Dorsal fins, at least most of them tend to have that. There's a few who have uh, lost them completely, but vast majority have a fin on the back. Tail with two flukes that go out to the side, not up and down like a shark. Yes, mermaid style. They typically have a very long skull, 
Big whales have extremely elongated skulls, but even things like dolphins have very long skulls. Nostrils on the top, forming the blowhole, quote-unquote. Yeah. Forelimbs have turned into flippers. They are no longer extremely mobile. They're actually fixed more like wings to be able to be stabilizers and rudders. Uh, some, like, dolphins can still gesture with them and, and do stuff, but they are no longer, like, twisting them and flipping them over like we can with our hands. Yeah, these aren't long-jointed arms, Mm -mm. and they're not just webbed fingers. They have formed a paddle shape. Very short arm with very elongated fingers that are completely enclosed with skin, so you can't see the individual pieces. And then the hind limbs are gone from the external body. Some do still have internal vestiges, vestigial portions of the pelvis and sometimes even back limbs yeah it's one of my favorite examples of a vestigial structure Mm-hmm. because like there you we talked in the snakes episode episode three about how you have some snakes that still have hind limbs yep little and little buds the little claws but they're using those yep this is if you x-ray a whale you might find a pelvis in it yep maybe maybe not who knows <laughs> maybe some little leg bones I saw a couple where there there might be still like some animals that you some of them that use it to anchor their reproductive organs, mm-hmm. so it may still be used for like that, but it's not functioning for locomotion anymore. It's not a leg. It's not a leg, and it's barely even hips. So these are fish shaped mammals now, but kind of flipped on their side. Sort of, kind of twisted, <laughs> kind of twisted, and so it's it's a weird body shape, but it is convergent with things like sharks you know that's why dolphins and sharks can be confused because hey if you're gonna swim it's good to have a back fin as a rudder it's good to have a tail that's shaped like a fish's tail and it's good to be sleek so shark shape yeah this is very much like the convergent evolution we were talking about in the news section indeed where if you're gonna swim in the ocean there's a few really good ways to do it and this is one of just that fish shape is a great way to do it. Cetaceans did it. Sharks did it. Most fish did it. Ichthyosaurs did it. Ichthyosaurs. Like, this is a classic. Mosasaurs did something rather similar. Uh, Even aquatic crocodilians took some of those features. So it's just, this is the ocean. This is, all the cool kids are doing it. Yep. Fish got it figured out. If you can't beat them, join them. Yes. Why, Why fix when they broke? And it is very successful. They are global. And when I say global, I mean global. It's, they, yep. there is not, there's almost not a body of water except for isolated lakes <laughs> and, and certain rivers that you can't find a cetacean in or near. There is at least one species of cetacean where the species is global. Yes. <laughs> so extremely, and they travel extreme distances. Oceans are not barriers to them. There are many whales who travel to the Arctic to feed and then the tropics to give birth. And so global species. And today they are split into two main subgroups. The Odontoceti are the toothed whales, which include all of your all of your really charismatic ones that we love to put in our TV shows. Dolphins, killer whales, which are orcas, and they're just big dolphins. Sperm whales, belugas, narwhals, porpoises. Uh, and your beaked whales, which I will definitely try to add a photo of them into the blog post because they are yes. bizarre. <laughs> and they don't weird. get nearly enough press for how weird they are. 
most of these are in their own families, the dolphins all together, and the delphinidae. The sperm whales are... To be specific, the ocean dolphins are all together. That's true. River dolphins are separate. We should we should take a moment and explain. So the word dolphin... Yeah. ...is a weak... Because people... Because this comes up like, are dolphins whales? What the heck are orcas? Yep. All dolphins are whales. Yes. All it's kind of like the square rectangle thing. Where yes. Or like snakes and lizards. Mm-hmm. All snakes are lizards. All dolphins are whales. Exactly how you want to define the word dolphin. <laughs> There's multiple families that are called dolphins. The orcas are part of one of the major dolphin families. So technically speaking, you could call an orca just a large marine dolphin. Yeah, and that's like physically, that's what they are. They're just a dolphin where you grab the corner and scale them up. They've they've got big sharp teeth. They've got echolocation. They're social. They're team hunters. Yeah, they're dolphins doing their best great white impression. Yep, and doing it better than the great whites because they <laughs> eat those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, it's there's a lot of uh, naming things that kind of cross boundaries where it's to kind of drive this home. Uh, recently in the news, there was the wolfin that some of you may have heard about yep. where it was a melon headed whale and a rough toothed dolphin that had hybrid had that had hybridized. This has happened before. It's just very rare, rare to see it naturally in the wild. It happens with dolphins that are in aquariums together all the time. So like this is not something that is unheard of, but it's just unique and rare to see it happening naturally. Well, and it, and it feels weird because we call them different things. Yes. But, but the melon-headed whale is a dolphin. Yeah. It's it's not... <laughs> the naming does not accurately reflect their distinctiveness. It's it's the same way that just because it's a koala bear... So make it a bear. Yes. Those things. It's... The reason it's probably called a whale is because it's a little bit bigger than your... What people were used to for dolphins when they first named it. So killer whale because you're big and... Melon-headed whale, because you're big. Whale means big. That's why we say a whale of a tail and things yes. like that. It's big means is synonymous with whale. So so we have our toothed whales. They have typically teeth and typically sharp teeth for hunting. The You have a couple of weird ones like the narwhals. Horn, quote-unquote, is a tooth. We Real quick, the narwhal, <laughs> if you don't know what a narwhal is, stop the podcast, Google what a narwhal is. Yes, uh, please. Narwhal has the long unicorn horn sticking out of its face. Yep. The narwhal's horn is its f- left upper first incisor. Yep. That is all. Yep. That's that is what all. it is. That's it's the left upper front. Oh, just the weirdest. It's a tusk. It's that's what it, it's one a tusk. tooth. Mm-hmm. It's asymmetrical. Yeah, that's the weird part. To it's me. not centered. It's off. To, it's one. It's the left one. It's not both. That throw it's so weird to me. That's the weird part, is that it's just one of them. It's not two of them curled together. It's just one twisty. It's like if all elephants had one tusk, but it was only on the left side. Yeah, and we didn't know what they were using it for for the longest time. There's been recent evidence that shows that they use it. Like, you will hear some things that say they use it for expanding ice, which maybe they do, but that's not uh, definite. 
there was finally some video evidence of them using it to catch fish like a swordfish does, where they will use it like a fencing sword to stun fish and then go grab them. Very cool. Well, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> so there's your toothed whales. The next are the baleen whales, the mysticity. And these are your whale whales. These yes. are <laughs> these are the whales. They whales. are the big the whales. <laughs> uh whales. These are your big, big ones. These include the right whales, the gray whales, the bowheads, the blue whale being the largest animal that, so far as we found, ever lived on the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, they range in size from moderate to very big. The smallest is the pygmy right, which for the smallest of this group is still 20 feet long. Yeah. And <laughs> probably weighing... Uh, on average, six and a half tons. Or no, it's uh, three and a half tons. The blue whale is, you know, on average, roughly about 100 feet long and 170 tons. Which is... It, it, what? It's, they're, they're like sauropods. Yes. In the sense that uh, they just don't do small. It's just ridiculous. And it's there's others that like the uh, the minky whale or the gray whale. The gray whale is the one that I'm thinking of is one of those that gets up to sizes very close to that. And, like, you get some ridiculous sizes. And we should take a moment to emphasize what you just said. Out of all the creatures that we will ever talk about on this podcast, you know, we we, we spend a lot of time talking about how dinosaurs were huge, and we talked about how sloths got huge. Whales are an order of magnitude. Yep bigger than most other animals on the planet yep this is just there is no comparison to this group of animals the smallest you just said the smallest of the mysticetes the baleen whales is larger than a rhino yep that's that's tiny for them there is one group of animals on land today that is bigger than the smallest (laughs) group of baleen whales in the world that's insane. Yeah. It's massive. And this is made all the more interesting. As most documentaries like to point out, the biggest animals eating the smallest. Now, they don't eat actually the smallest. Uh, yes. They're typically eating krill, not plankton. I want to set that here. We're going we're gonna to dispel this myth right here right now. Because that comes up all the time where it's like, oh, yeah, they eat plankton. Well, no. Plankton's like microscopic. Yeah. Like, krill are little tiny shrimpy things. Yeah. And... Honestly, for most people that haven't actually seen krill, krill's not actually that small. You can actually, like, krill can be a few inches long. Mm-hmm. Like, they can be almost the size of a hot dog. There are, There's krill out there that's not tiny. But when you're 100 feet long, then yeah, it's tiny. Yes. Plankton is the larva and, you know, m- multi-celled and single-celled organisms that just are throughout all water in the ocean. <laughs> At least the, 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 like, standard most plankton. Yeah. Your, your, your typical microplankton. Yeah. Is. They're so, all planktonic. Yes, and that's the issue. they're not all microscopic. Planktonic <laughs> means you're free-floating as you live. You are just caught in the currents. Most plankton, when you're talking about plankton, is not what whales are eating. Uh, so just but putting that out there. Feeders. They are, and they use the baleen made out of keratin like our hair. And it's hard like our fingernail and filament, filamentous, very much like our hair is. 
hangs down from the bottom jaw and is in place of teeth for all modern baleen whales. Yeah, so and they had those huge weird jaws, giant heads that look like a like like half of a boat a skeleton. <laughs> yeah, just these huge open heads to hold this giant strainer. Uh, the Balaenopteridae are the ones that have the folded necks, the skin on the neck that expands like an accordion to just engulf ridiculous gallons of water in one big gulp. And so they're the ones that use that. Others just have really big mouths. And it's just insane that, like, the list, when you think of feeding modes, it's like, all right, predators, everything from snakes to tigers and mm-hmm. herbivores, everything, you know, all the filter feeders, clams, oysters, sea lilies, the largest animals of all time. Yep. They call them bulk feeders. Yes. <laughs> this is this is known as bulk feeding, while the toothed whales would be co- called what we call grab and bite, where they're just eating normally. These are just, this is like Sam's Club version. Yes. Of- <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that baleen whales feed by biting chunks out of the ocean. Yep. I'm going to take this bit of ocean and I'll keep what I like. <laughs> That's what they do. Interesting difference between the two groups, which is something... I don't know that I knew until I started doing research for this. Baleen whales don't use echolocation. Yeah. It's just the toothed whales. Now, baleen whales sing. Notably, the humpback whales are the ones famous for it. And they're the ones that do it more intricately than anybody else. But baleen whales communicate over great distances. So they still have amazing hearing. But they're not using it to hunt or navigate. They're just talking over massive expanses miles and miles this also makes cetaceans an unusually vocal group of marine creatures they're so noisy like other oh, like seals and sea lions are noisy but they're typically i think of them being noisy on land yep and sharks tend not to be very noisy and fish nope. tend not to be very noisy this is these they're the boisterous mammals that moved in they're just <laughs> disturbing all the fish there's those noisy neighbors Now, transitioning into a little more of the history side, as we eventually move our way into the the fossil record, I wanted to talk about where whales fall on their mammal family tree because they have had a very messy history as to who they're related to and what were they related to. And it's actually been a very cool story as to how the correct answer, or the current answer at least, was discovered. So originally there was the age-old debate of morphological features or molecular features that was splitting the whales uh between two different options it was it was saying one was saying one and one was saying the other for morphological looking at the skeleton and the skull and mostly the teeth it pointed to a group called the mesonicids and these were a ancient group of mostly carnivorous mammals that were majorly during the Eocene, uh, originated just before that, that were close to the root of hoofed mammals, the ungulates. Maybe they were an offshoot from the ancestor of ungulates, or maybe they were cousins, or maybe they were... We're not quite sure where they fall in relation there, but they are related to hoofed mammals, but these were hoofed predators, but they didn't have hooves like we think of them today they had like little hoofed toes and 
often are called wolf-like in shape, but they would have been very stout and big-headed. So probably not long-distance runners, but they had these big, beefy heads that they would go around with. Yeah, today, most of your land carnivore mammals belong to the carnivora. Cats, dogs, bears, weasels. Aptly named. Yes. But this was a group that was a diverse carnivorous mammal group before carnivorans reached the sort of diversity they have today. Indeed. So they, they were filling that role before they the carnivorans had stepped up. Uh, the There's a bunch of big ones that you'll hear about. Uh, uh, Mesonix is one. Paki, hyena is a, a big one that will come up. The famous one, which I want to mention because it's actually you know fairly recently not placed within Mesonicids anymore, is Andrew Sarkis. Yes. Uh, was kind of their their golden child that's probably not a Mesonicid now yes. that we've <laughs> taken a closer look. But it's it's similar enough to have to give you an idea of what Mesonicids are like. So Absolutely. If you've ever heard of Andrew Sarkis. This this is currently the largest land mammalian predator that we've ever found. It was probably yeah. six foot tall at the shoulder. <laughs> Roughly 12 feet long and had a three-foot skull. To put that into perspective, that's the same size of skull for the largest crocodile measured in modern day. I'm pretty sure that's also roughly the size of an Allosaurus skull. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I said, they were big-headed. Uh, almost kind of piggish looking in there. So they, they may have looked like big predatory pigs. kind Like, like a hog. Yeah. yeah. Very weird. Very diverse, very beefy animals. Andrew Sarkis has now been found to actually be within uh, artiodactyls, the the even-toed ungulates. So those are the ones with the the two cloven hoofs, not the single horsey hoofs, for the scientific terminology that you're <laughs> that you look for in this show. Now that's what morphology said, and it was mostly due to the teeth. They both early whales and the Mesonicids had these triple-crowned triangular teeth that were very distinct and so close that a lot of mesonicid teeth were actually, once further studied, reclassified as early whale teeth because they were so oh, similar. So it was a strong lead. The molecular, though, said, nope, they are not with the mesonicids. They are, in fact, with the artiodactyls, those cloven-hoofed animals, pigs and cows and deers, and hippos being the one that they were shown to be sister group to. When you look at the genetics, it shows that whales and hippos are buddy-buddy. That's a pretty big distinction <laughs> between the two yeah. options. <laughs> well, and that, that was for a long time. It, it became one of those classic, like that example of how missing leaving out the fossil record the evolutionary history of a group can lead to odd comparisons like the fact that birds are the closest living relatives to crocodiles yes well crocodilians yeah because there's a whole lot of cool evolutionary history there and we've only kept two little bits of it whales were technically the closest living relative to hippos and it's there's a whole lot to unpack there. And I'm sure we can like we can do another episode on the nitty-gritties of modern whales because there's lots of cool stuff there. The fact that both hippos and whales are aquatic is very likely not due to their close relation. 
that is probably something that happened separately in each branch. So that's yeah. they a, are both descended from com- very different land-dwelling ancestors. Yes, uh, they just have the most recent common ancestor among the artiodactyls. So that forms a group called Whippomorpha, which is a which, great name. It's a great name. It's a great Whippomorpha. name. Whippomorpha. Whippomorpha, and. <laughs> Uh, this group was suggested. It was a very, I remember even while, you know, there were moments while we were in school where there'd be some things that acknowledged it and some things that didn't. Mm-hmm. As it was sort of gaining traction. And so Whippomorpha was not accepted by everyone. And the, the Mesonicid and Aryodactyl debate was until fairly recently still a very back and forth issue on it wasn't really going one way strongly until finally fossils were found that gave morphological backup to the molecular ain't that just a a common tale as old as genetic studies yep (laughs) yep (laughs) of specifically this this field of study (laughs) so what this suggests so we we have concluded right our fossil evidence and our genetic evidence have come together to conclude a position for whales on the mammal family tree within slash adjacent to the artiodactyls. And indeed, if you start looking up whales, you will find this taxonomic grouping called the seat artiodactyla. Yep. Which is commonly used as the name of the group that includes the cetaceans and the artiodactyls. So this is a group, once again, that weird, not only are whales weird, but evolution is weird. This is a group that includes cows, pigs, sheep, goats, moose, bison, hippos, whales, and dolphins. Just for some diversity. It's just a strange, in much the same way that the carnivora includes dogs, cats, bears, hyenas, weasels, mongooses, the fossa we talked about last episode, and walruses and seals. Yep. Because some... Everyone has a weird cousin. Yep. Because some, some people just won't go with the program. Just gotta be different. <laughs> it's, it's time to get out of the pool. I don't wanna get out of the pool. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> stay in there. Yeah. You'll get all pruny and get blubbery. We'll see how you like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> stay here forever. But these connections become a lot more evident when you go back into the fossil record. It, it becomes common sense once you look at the transition of the fossils, which it's that's the biggest lesson when it comes to looking examining modern day animals is you are looking at a very small piece of the puzzle. You are looking at what is left behind, and not everything gets left behind. So you have to look back. Go back. Back, go back. No one's going to get that <laughs> reference. <laughs> so to go back, we now can go through some of the fossil whales. I'm going to give you some of the details on what they found that connected the artiodactyls and our flippered friends. So fossil whales. Fossil whales is a kind of comedic term because the majority of animals that f- 
fall within that term look absolutely nothing like what you consider a whale. <laughs> yeah. So you you see these things where like, and this early whale, and you're like, no, no, I know what a whale looks like. That's that's not a whale. No, that's a stilt-legged pig monster. We're gonna go. We're gonna go through. We're gonna start. Not chronological. Not quite uh, evolutionary. None of the animals I'm about to list off are necessarily the ancestor to any of the others on the list. So I don't want to you know make it seem like I am giving you the direct family history. I am giving you examples that show states from land to water because there was vast diversity of just about all the stages that I'm going to mention. There were multiple animals doing this body shape. Just I'm going to notice mention some of the more notable ones. Much like when we talked about birds, yes. there was a period of time where there this whole group uh, of whale ancestors and what I, I always like the phrase ancestral cousins were experimenting with moving into the water and eventually from this diversity of early cetaceans came the modern groups. Also, like in our human evolution episode, episode 18, we talked about how there was this whole diversity of weird apes, weird kind of human-like apes, and what remains from that diversity is our lineage. So there was a time period where if you had gone back and looked in the ocean, you would have seen this crazy diversity of stuff that wasn't whales but sure isn't anything else. Yes, exactly. And this group is actually collected together under the taxa Archaeocetes. Ancient whales. Ancient whales. That's Ecetes means whales, cetaceans. And you'll notice that with uh, that as a trend in many of the names we're about to go over. Now, this group is probably, as more research goes on, will be more refined. Uh, one uh, source I was reading said... This group mostly grouped together for convenience, their words, but saying that this is a group that is old whales, as more resolution is had, it'll probably be redefined and restructured. Now, this group mostly spans the early Eocene, about 55 million years ago, to late Oligocene, but a bunch of it happened within the Eocene. So we're talking about 55 to 23 million years ago is where most of these uh, weirdos fall within. And the big feature for the vast majority of what we're about to talk about is that they don't have just on the surface whale features. They just look like mammals, just, just run-of-the-mill land mammals. They still have uh, a diversity of teeth you know, shapes and designs and, and structures, while most whales either have the same shape of tooth or no teeth. Nostrils at the tip of the nose where they belong. <laughs> <laughs> Down on the snoot. Yep, right there for sniffing. And they still had substantial hind limbs, and their front limbs were made for walking. They were four-legged, terrestrial land living mammals they really just kind of look like little uh i don't know like almost wolfish mixed with a couple of other weird animals because they have like little hoofy things but they have like a very long yeah you know, they're like wolf sheep wolf sheep yeah now there are mostly five major groups that <laughs> that we're going to go through uh 
to discuss these, but uh, I want to start with one of the earliest, which is Indohias. And this one will give us a lot of the features that kind of broke through that morphological barrier to say, no, these, these are whales. And they're weird features. They're not what you expect. So Indohias was not a big animal. It was looked like a it was about the same size of the uh, small deer that like like musk deer and stuff like that. So goatish sized um, maximum, probably closer to cat and raccoon most of the time. So you're very just small, a little animal, yeah, little animal, probably scurrying around the forest and whatnot. Just pretty standard looking animal. When you see it, it's just like oh, that looks like a a really big dog rat. Is kind of how it, because it has that long face. They are within the artiodactyls, but they're in the rheolids, not not the archaeocetes yet. So this is just out. So this is probably just getting very close to the first of the the actual ancient whales. But it's already showing the features that connect. The main connections uh, are actually. One that's weird because it has to do with the back legs is something called the astragalus. So the astragalus is a leg joint that is looks like a joint, like it looks like a pulley system, mm-hmm. uh, distinctive among artiodactyls. Uh, ungulates and have this feature, but it is very distinctive from the perseodactyls and the artiodactyls. They have artiodactyl astragalus, so they're back leg joints. The astragalus like, is a ankle bone. Yes, it is the ankle. It's gonna actually going to be much higher up on the leg than our ankle would be. But it is going to be that second joint down on the leg for those back legs. It, they have the same joint as other artiodactyls. And we actually do find this in the remnants of the back legs of other whales. They're not doing stuff, but you can find that artiodactyl astragalus in there. Very cool. So that's one of the big things that connects them down the line. The big one, this was really the the kicker, is the ear. Or more accurately, the lack of normal ear. Like, they don't (laughs) have the normal opening to an ear that most mammals would. They actually have a covering of bone on the outside that, so far, has only been seen in cetaceans. So this is a creature that is... Sort of a a cousin to the earliest ancestors of whales, and the signs of its relatedness are an ankle bone to a group of animals that mostly don't have back legs, (laughs) and the inner ear structure. Yes, the middle ear. That we we look at it and we go, "This, this looks like a regular animal, like standard ancient weird animal thing, except it has whale ears. Whale ears. So the, the structure there is, it's a, this... Thick, like it's a substantial covering of bone over the middle ear called the evulcrum. This is part of that hearing system that today whales are able to use underwater because whales listen to their bottom jaw. And the important thing there is that that gives you stereo hearing in water while when you listen underwater, it's just traveling through the bones of your head and you hear everything at the same time. So Noise just sounds like it's coming from all directions underwater for us. But this feature eventually leads to the being able to hear underwater. Right now, it is not being used for that within Indohias. 
but it is the beginning steps toward that. Probably a little animal eating uh, plants mostly from the oxygen isotope analysis of their teeth. Cool thing shows that it was eating some aquatic plants. So this was a partially aquatic animal. So it was probably waiting. Interesting. So it was already near the water, but the isotopes show it was spending more time foraging on land. So it was likely going to the water for safety. So much like a marsh deer, they graze on land, and when they get scared, they run into the water, where they can move slightly better than their predator probably can. And perhaps can hear slightly better than their predator can. Yeah, so this was an animal that was just using the water when they really had to. They were not living and foraging there. And then we continue on, and we start to see a lot of these things slowly transition, and it's it's the 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 cleanliness of the transition is really fascinating. The next one is Pachycetus. Pachycetus is is one of the most famous of the ancient whales. This is this is kind of high up there on the list. Uh would have looked very similar to Endohyus. You know, legs probably tail, you know, long skull, wolf size this time so we're a little bit bigger. And for this one it looks like it was a meat eater, probably fish according to a lot of the chemical analysis or at least sometimes ate fish so now we're predatory which is important because even the big filter feeders modern whales are predatory so we have switched over to a, a fishy diet this one is from the middle eocene and is from the uh kuldana formation in pakistan which is gonna come up a lot a lot of these are from pakistan Mm-hmm. It's a whale haven. This Pakistan collection of ancient whales, a lot of them were discovered 1990s, uh, was a, a bunch of these discoveries. This one was discovered in 1983, but there's a bunch that were happened right before the 2000s and was a big part of rewriting this. So they were kind of found in close succession to one another. And just it was like a whale renaissance of... Wow, we just found a whole bunch of things that completely rewrite what we knew about whale fossils. So, and this was a big part of that. Has the ankle bone, has that ear covering. The skull was all they had originally. Since then, more complete specimens have been found, but that was still enough to give them that ear connection. Yeah. In fact, when Pachycetus was first found, the whale-like features of the skull were so convincing that the early reconstructions of Pachycetus, when they asked an artist to draw it, they drew it as this semi-aquatic, almost sea lion-like creature. And then later on, we found the rest of the skeleton went, oh no, it was living on land. It just had all these cetacean-like features in its skull. Now, this was probably, since it was eating fish, still living near the water or partially in the water. But now we, now you have to picture it more like, uh, I'm trying to think of a, of a really good comparison. Like, like not, the not otters. Quite an otter. Yeah. Like the raccoons that feed on the, on stuff near rivers and stuff that are catching things. Yeah. Or even like a, like a grizzly bear that goes yeah, to catch yeah. the fish, but with the ocean. Yes. And so these, that is the case with a lot of these. Now there were freshwater or, ba- or a polar whales. bear, maybe even. Ooh, that's probably a good. That's probably yeah. a good one. Most of these ancient whales uh, are coastal. Uh, now they may be 
intercoastal where they're in the more tributaries, brackish water. And we can tell a lot of this by looking at teeth uh, chemistry. What kind of water you're drinking is going to affect the uh, isotopes that are absorbed into your bones and teeth. And so there are definitely some that were closer to the freshwater, but most of them are going to be in somewhat salty water. But most of them are not in the ocean. They're going to be either on the beach or in those tributaries, so in bays and stuff like that. Pachycetus is the first of our big group of the Archaeocetes, the uh, Pachycetidae. And then Ambulacetidae is our next group with the famous one of Ambulacetus. You can see where the group's got their names. Ambulacetus is a really cool one because Ambulacetus looks like the early reconstructions of Pachycetus. Yes, it does. Like they drew those reconstructions of Pachycetus as this, uh, like you have that kind of wolf dog looking thing, but the arm, the hands and legs are big and kind of starting to look paddle like, and they're a little, that, that sort of sinuous look to it. And then later it was like, oh no, that's not what Pachycetus looked like at all. But it's what Ambulacetus looked like. We found that one though. Yep. We also found that one. And so Ambulacetus, known as the walking whale. Ambulatory. And so this is still in the Eocene. We're about uh, 49 million years ago. Still Pakistan. At this point, we're in coastal and brackish water. And this is larger. This is getting bigger. 11 to 12 feet long. Uh, probably. Sized. Yeah, probably a few hundred pounds. 400 pounds or so. Still had functional limbs still had probably very strong limbs but probably couldn't walk very well so once again comparable to the the gator situation where they have very powerful limbs but they are not great at walking long distances they're kind of awkward and very very purposeful in their walk when they are on land this one was probably like that because they had very long digits very long toes on the back feet especially that were probably webbed like frog feet frog feet short squat legs and and forearms so big head sharp teeth people have actually suggested that it may have even been filling a mammalian crocodile kind of role of yeah ambushing or you know living because it's if it's in those tributaries and those brackish water environments that's crocodile territory so it may have been a a mammal croc of sorts. <laughs> so it, it's living like a crocodilian or perhaps to a lesser extent like in a sea otter. Mm-hmm. Where it, that same, like when you were describing the, the land, I imagine the waddle. Yes. That, that otters it, have when they're on the land. That's exactly what one of the things I, I read said is they probably waddled. <laughs> uh, but the otter comparison is also probably apt because that's most likely how it swam. So anyone who's ever gotten to watch otters swim, they move in an up-down undulation like whales and dolphins do, where they are going up and down, pumping that tail. Now, otters use their tail mostly as a rudder. They're mostly using their back feet to kick up every time they pump. And that's very likely, we can't be sure, how Amblycetus was using its feet as it was folding its feet up on the down and then opening them and spreading them out like a like a, a seal does as well. Uh, certain seals, the the um, sea lions, you can see doing more of that up down movement and 
fanning it out like a whale's tail as they swam. And so probably starting to see more of an otter-like lifestyle. Uh, definitely for the next group, the next one is the, the Remington Ocetiidae. And in here we have uh, Cuchicetus, still Middle Eocene, and about 43, 46 million years ago. So you can see that this is actually very close proximity to one another. And some of these very well could be overlapping and all existing, like we said at the beginning. Now we are smaller with this group. This, once again, this is not consecutive, but we're going through those body shape designs, those body shape formats. This is smaller, very otter-like skeleton. Long, powerful tail, still has those webbed feet, still has a long skull, but it is smaller, squat-legged. So this this could very well be a, a otter whale of sorts. Also interesting because it lived in tropical waters, uh, found in sediments of very likely shallow seas around like oh, barrier islands and stuff. This is something that we should, we, we keep making these comparisons to modern day animals like we did with the ants. We talked about those modern analogs. And this is important because one of those, it, it's one of those age old questions of, you know, arguing about evolution. What, what uses something that is half whale? Yes. And the utility of being able to compare with modern day animals is you say, okay, well, these, this group, this general group appears to have gone from living like your marsh deer to then living like your polar bear or your, your animal occasionally going in the water to living like a crocodilian to living like an otter. And the really fascinating thing and the important thing is that each of these are perfectly valid successful lifestyles and we know they're perfectly valid successful lifestyles because there are animals doing them still today yep so it's it's there's nothing broken about this design it's just not yet what we would call a whale they're working their way through different niches adjacent niches which is really fascinating to watch and so this one has another interesting feature because it is now smaller back legged the back legs are not as ah, big as they were. We're seeing that reduction in the hind legs. And the tail is big and powerful. We're not sure that the tail had any flukes. There's no evidence for that. So it may have just been flat paddle-like, but not, you know, finned. But the legs probably were not doing a lot for propulsion here. So it may have been more the tail at this point. Uh, so kind of like a when a beaver needs to swim fast and they do their big tail, you know, paddle. They even think that it probably was more of a diver than the the earlier whales may have been so the or the the other whales that seem to be more terrestrial as we move on we're getting we're getting to some that are starting to show some really cool features uh i like this next one because it's got a cool story behind it so this is the protocetidae and uh, myocetus inuus is the specific species we're going to talk about because myocetus means mother whale because this specimen has a cool story <laughs> This is, once again, Pakistan, Eocene, a little over uh, 47 million years ago. This was a sizable ancient whale, about eight and a half feet long, relatively short hind limbs, but long digits, so it's still probably paddling with those and kicking with those back feet, most likely webbed, as we've said before. The uh, pelvic structure of this early whale suggests a more whale-like swimming of up-down 
you know, undulation. So the one of the things you see with whale pelvises over time is they start normal attached to the back rooms with a sacrum where the bones are fused together into a big hip structure, but they slowly unfuse to where there's less fusion there and disconnect from the backbone more and more to, until they're completely separate from the spine. Uh, so this is starting to show more of that whale-like shape. Possibly still could come on land, but was likely awkward. So we may see one that's more like a seal that just comes up to rest or something. You know. Yeah, and they're not even wobbling anymore. They're just, they're like flopping. Yeah. So this one may may or may not have been able to walk very well, but was definitely not as good as our other entries that we've mentioned. The original discovery was in 2009. So this is actually fairly recent. Mm-hmm. And included three skeletons. And man, these three skeletons are cool. Two of the skeletons were large individuals, uh, su suggested to be adults. The third was housed within one of the two skeletons and was much smaller. Ooh. Which suggests that it was a fetus inside of a pregnant female. A fetal cetus. A fetal cetus. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And so this was appeared to be a baby whale yet to be born. And the fact that of the two larger ones, one was slightly bigger and did show morphological differences, it was interpreted as a male and female, female being pregnant. That's really cool. Oh, so many cool things came out from this. Uh, the baby was pointing face first uh, toward the mother's tail, which suggests face first birth, which suggests land birth, not sea birth. Because... Modern day whales are born tail first because otherwise the baby would drown in the amount of time it took to be born. Oh. This baby was coming out face first, so it was most likely on land when it happened. So they were like sea turtles. Like sea turtles <laughs> that came ashore wow. to give birth, maybe, and then would go back to the water. The baby also had uh, already decently formed molars so they think that it may have been decently precocial which means it was probably already feeding itself a little bit so it may have been hunting along with drinking milk or at least hunting very soon after being born the reason they don't think that this was one that the big one ate is because there was no damage on no major damage on the skull of the small skeleton and these whales had big gnashing tearing teeth so they would have mulched a small animal like that the Big one, if it's a male, does show sexual dimorphism because there's larger canines and uh, a V-shaped notch in the pelvis. So not only is this a cool early whale, but it potentially gives us a lot of information about the individual dynamics of birth and the sexual dimorphism and even looks into their lifestyle, which is, oh, it's, it's just a, a goldmine of a fossil find. And it's important that we, we remind everybody we're, this still isn't a whale. <laughs> like, not like you think of a whale. Reconstructions of this thing look like a swimming rodent. But it's, it's yeah. big. It's very yes. big. But it still looks like, you know, this would have been paddling through the water. They're almost very frog-like where they have these reduced front limbs uh, compared to, you know, having like a, a cat or dog body where you have long limbs. And then these big back feet. So it's like these they're made for swimming and their front limbs aren't doing much while they're swimming. They're just puttering around. Still within the same group, the Protocetidae, is Rhodocetus, which is one of the ones often given as the example for this kind of stage where they have big 
webbed back feet and uh, are starting to get a slightly more whalish looking body in that they're very streamlined, most likely. Still Pakistan, still Eocene, still roughly 47 million years ago. So still smack dab in that. This was the old, earliest known whale to be collected from sedimentary deposits representing uh, relatively deep water aquatic environments. Okay, so we have some of these that are going not just sticking right by the shore, but going fairly far out. That's actually making its way into open waters. Eight feet long, about the same size as Myocetus. Had well-developed back limbs. Slightly longer back back legs than the forelimbs, actually, with this one. So back to that frog metaphor. They actually had longer back legs, which seems a little counterintuitive to the whale situation. But if you're using those for swimming, makes sense. And again, this isn't a perfect transition this is a diversity of creatures all shooting at different ways to do the same thing unlike land mammals it did not have its backbones at the pelvis fused so we are getting away from that sacrum yeah so the the hips are splitting from pelvis and backbone a little bit here and it was very flexible back very flexible backbone which made it was most likely more flexible for swimming but less support while walking on land. So this may have been even more clumsy when it came out of water, if it came out of water, who knows. Underwater hearing seems to be present here. So that cool hearing I talked about, the hole near the jaw joint, is where sound travels into whales' ears nowadays. So sound travels up the jaw through the very thin bones along the inside of the jaw and into fatty pads at this hole. The mandibular foramen is the hole and the mandibular fat pad is the bit of fat there that transition that that transmits the sound into the middle and inner ear. And this is what gives them surround sound while underwater. So this is now efficient underwater hearing that we have evidence for in this one by looking at the jaw and skull bones. So we're in deeper water and we're able to hear and who knows, communicate. Maybe these were singing like whales or something. Oh, that's nice to imagine. I know. That'd be so cool. Now, this one also has a cool thing with how it swam that's weird. So originally it was thought that it probably did the up-down otter-style undulation with its back feet. But more recent research suggests, once again, this is not, you know, put it in the books. It's definite. But... Most recent suggestion actually says that it was more likely that kind of like a muskrat or the swimming rodents that we see where it's kicking each foot separately back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So the back feet are just kicking back and forth like it's running in place as it swims forward. So it may have been more like a little motorboat instead of a paddling system, which is I that's kind of cool to think of. Still had differentiated teeth. Most likely a fish eater, uh, but many of them are starting to become cone-shaped. So we're seeing a little bit more of that shape to it. Now we get into your whale-shaped ancestors. The Bacillosauridae. Yeah. Named after Bacillosaurus. This is another name that if you are at all familiar with whale evolution, you have heard this, this name before. Oh, yeah. So... These are getting into the late Eocene. So now we've, we've moved out of that, that little pocket of time that we were just hovering around. We're actually a little more recent. And these include a lot of very whale-like 
animals. So now we're closer to 40 million years yes. in the past. 40, and even getting into like the 30 millions for some of them. So it's a lot of these lasted for a, lo- a little while, and most of them seem to be fully aquatic. Most of the evidence does not show that they probably could leave the water even if they wanted to. So we are getting into now marine male ans- whale ancestors, fully aquatic. The two that often pop up in here is Basilosaurus and Dorodon, which are very similar to one another. In fact, Dorodon was at one point thought to be a juvenile Basilosaurus, but they are basically a very large and a very uh, a smaller, not very small, but a smaller version of these early aquatic whales, and they still have some weird features. Still long, narrow skulls, very predatory looking. So like a dolphin, but without that narrow beak, it's still a, a sloped triangular shape almost. And part of the reason that Basilosaurus has a source in its name is because that shape and the the shape of the skeleton was believed to be from a big reptile. Yeah, like a mosasaur. A mosasaur a kind of reptile kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like a, a lizardy sort of aquatic predator because it had this very long serpentine body just yes extremely elongated both of these have that feature and it may have been that they were doing even more dramatic ungulation to it was like a ribbon down the body because it's it is not your compact whale shape where it's a big part and a tail it's just like head torso and then tail yeah, Basilosaurus is about as close as mammals have ever gotten to a sea serpent. Yes, it is. And, and it was big. Basilosaurus was big. They were These 15 to 18 small. meters. Yes. <laughs> so that's that's getting close to you know, 50, 60 feet. Yes. So we're looking at now that what we've been waiting for is for them to get large. Big. But these, think of this as like a 50 or 60 foot killer whale, an orca. Yeah. Because they had sharp teeth and they were hunters. In fact, there's evidence from the fossils that Basilosaurus fed on Dorodon. Uh, so this is a whale-on-whale hunting going on. And it's it's really cool to think about these large, actively predatory whales. Still no blowholes, but the, the nostrils have moved about midway on the skull. So they're not at the tip, but they're not at the back yet on top. So they're... Moving up, probably a little more efficient for breathing, but they're not that nice spout that you're going to see. And that's another thing that's really fun to look at when you look at these sort of transitions and when certain features show up is that it's rarely that all the features, it's rarely that when you're midway between one feature, you're also midway between all the other features. Like, yeah, the Bacillosaurids are fully aquatic, but the nostril feature has not yet transitioned up yeah they still have like a distinct head from the neck and everything we're not seeing any of that filter feeding yet that we see in a lot of modern whales and they still have little back limbs which is one of the weird parts with ankles and toes that That may have been from the body like they're probably were sticking out there probably weren't doing much for locomotion in any way maybe like pythons yes they were kicking each other they were tickling each other These these were very successful. They were global. Uh, Bacillosaurus has been found in 
Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, uh, Australia, Egypt, and are actually uh, state fossils for Alabama and uh, Mississippi, I believe, as well, along with uh, Zygoriza, which is another early aquatic whale. Yeah, I was going to say, if you are in the southeast, the south- southeastern United States, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, your states are famous for fossil whales. Yes, they are. And Mississippi and Alabama have your state fossil are these early ancient whales. It's a cool fossil to have. That's a cool state fossil to have. Those are good choices. Now, at this point, we are getting toward when we see the modern group show up by the late Oligocene. Mm-hmm. So we're 25 million years yeah, or so. Yeah, right about there. We do start to see some of the first members of the modern groups. And by the Miocene, we have seen most of the, at least representat- representatives for most of the modern groups of whales. And they proper have fully... Proper whales, proper yes. toothed whales as we know them today, dolphins. And so we, they are represented and they become diverse during the Miocene. But you know, before uh, five million years ago, you have an ocean with whales at least close to what we see today. There's still some weird ones in there, but that will have to be a discussion for another time because <laughs> yes. there's there we could have another discussion very similar because the modern whales get just as cool and weird with their ancestors. Yeah, but this I'm is a lot like off. the birds episode. Oh, where it's like, and now we have birds you would recognize, and that's the episode. Yep, thanks for coming. Just, but to but to recap here, so. If you go back to the Paleocene, right, before 55 million years ago, early land animals, within the early parts of the Eocene, you start to see Indo-Hyas, Pachycetus, those creatures that from the outside you wouldn't know that what's going on inside the ear and inside the leg are those first hints of stuff we would eventually see. And then almost all that diversity is in that swath of eocene time frame eocene was the heyday for early whales where nature was just experimenting with all these different croc-like forms and otter-like forms and ways to have a mammal that is semi-aquatic and this is the first time mammals really attempted this yes because the pinnipeds seal sea lions walruses didn't show up until later the dugongs might have been. I don't off the top of my head know when the dugongs were doing this. Yeah, I don't know. But you got all these experiment. You know, if you went into the ocean at that time, you'd see all these weird, mostly coastal mammal crocs and and wolf otters and weird shapes. And then if you went back to the later Eocene or the Oligocene, you would see a lot of those big predatory small-headed compared to whales today. Yes. With little back legs sticking out that sort of were almost there. Basilosaurus always reminds me of the Goombas from the 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie. (laughs) It's got this huge body. Oh, no. And this little mean head on the end of it. I won't be able to picture it any other way now. (laughs) Take that, Basilosaurus fans. (laughs) I'm going to get you. 
I'd like to apologize not only for ruining your image of Basilosaurus, but also for reminding you that the for referencing Super Mario Brothers <laughs> movie happened. <laughs> but so there's this too soon. Most most of this wonderful transition happens over the course of like ten million years, yeah. where we go from none of them are in the water to all of them are in the water, which shows that there was something awesome about being in the in the water. That there, there was, was a some big advantage push for this. Yep. It's it's a extremely complicated group of animals that are branching off and traveling down that evolutionary line toward whales today, but also going down all these side passages. And even with the groups of whales we recognize today, there are weirdos among them as well. And so it is an amazing group, extremely successful. Not doing so hot nowadays for different reasons. Yeah, because uh, yeah, they make lamps burn good. Um, yeah. <laughs> but they are a group that successfully conquered the seas from <laughs> humble beginnings. I mean, you know, cat, oh, yeah. wolf size. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, they are the successors to, you know, we talked about how in the snakes episode, episode three, uh, how the different groups of snakes were the ocean snakes at different yep. times. Well, this is what becomes of the ocean that has lost its mosasaurs and plesiosaurs. Yes. Well, whales. Whales are the mammalian answer to that. There's like, hey, there's all these niches left open here. That's eventually it's, we're going to move in there. Whenever there's an open niche, it is basically another group of animals coming over going, "Hey, you going to eat that?" Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then stepping in. No, I'm just going to I'm just going to come in here and invite myself over to this. <laughs> But the transition here, it's always fun because what I mentioned very beginning of the episode, we did that game yes. at the museum where we had, it was a very simplified evolutionary tree and we had arranged it so that we had these little post-its, mm -hmm. these little uh, Velcro pictures of the animals and you would arrange them based on what features they had. Yes. And you end with this nice line that shows a very clear transition from land to ocean and then, of course, the real fossil scenario is that line is there, but it's also tangled up in all these other side branches and all yeah. these other experiments. Same with human evolution. Same with the bird evolution we discussed. But this is how evolution works. Yes. I mean, I've used it before, but it always makes me think of when new technology arises to where it's like we have motion capture. And then all of a sudden there's all these off brands of the Connect and the PlayStation and Wii systems that have their own motion control that are different and trying the technology out in other ways. They may not be the ones that last to the end, but they attempt to do it in slightly different ways. And it's really cool getting to see that variety. And this blog post will be full of pictures. Oh, so of many pictures. pictures. It's going to be a lot. You should. There, we have scratched the surface. Go explore some more. Yes, but I don't think that's quite it. That's it, not. David? We have one last thing. One of the things that every now and then we get one of these, one of our rewards for our patrons is that at a certain level, you get to ask questions for, of us and we will answer it on the podcast. We've only ever done a few of these. We got a new one recently that we thought was enjoyable enough to post from Cheryl on Patreon, whose name comes up on here a lot because she is one of our more engaged patrons. Thank you, Cheryl. A lot of good things to say. 
in a message full of wonderful ideas of stuff for us to talk about on the podcast in the future, Cheryl brought up the question of fake fossils. Yes. Now, this is an idea for an entire episode, but the question we wanted to address, because it's an interesting question, is Cheryl asked, what threat is there to the science of paleontology from fake fossils? It's an excellent question. And for the purposes of answering this in just a couple minutes at the end of this whale of an episode, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. I can think of three broad categories of dangers that fake fossils pose. One is it erodes credibility. Yes, it does. If you go to a market and buy a bunch of Moroccan trilobites that aren't, mm -hmm. then people get the idea of fake fossils stuck in their heads. This comes up at the museum all the time. It's one of the most frustrating things that comes up all the time is people will point at the fossils and go, okay, are these fake? Yep. And they and it's very accusatory. It's mm -hmm. that word is very accusatory. I have been like like they're saying I've been fooled before. Yes, are you tricking me? Are you tricking me with these? And that there are fakes out there and it mm -hmm. really does undermine paleontological credibility. Number 2, it can actually interfere with research if you made a really good one. Yep. There have been a few very famous cases of fossils that made it just far enough before they were caught that they caused some sort of stir, that they led to science academic discussion, that that they wedged their way into the science, and that's a distraction, and that can that can kill careers in the in the one very famous example and again we'll do a whole episode on this at some point oh yeah i'm very excited about it uh piltdown man had us slightly confused for a very long time yes it did <laughs> that's that's the go-to and yeah it was bad and then the third thing that comes to my mind is that the idea of fake fossils knowing that you can fake a fossil for profit which is incentive in a lot of cases can lead to people not just sculpting fake fossils, but trying to modify mm -hmm. existing fossils. And there are examples of fossils that have been damaged by people trying to make it better, by trying to fake Archaeoraptor. The other famous hoax fossil was a case where somebody made a mishmash of different fossils. And who knows what kind of damage you're doing to what could very, be very rare and interesting fossils by trying to hoax them together. So those are the three that come to my mind. I don't. Do you think of anything else? In my opinion, the lack of the loss of credibility is the one that does the lasting damage. Because as soon as someone has realized that there has been a lie within a certain topic or subject it is very easy for them to then be suspicious of everything from there on out. It, whether the, whether it's questioning specific fake fossils or just saying, yeah, but you guys got it wrong that one time. And mm, yep. How, how can, how can I trust you after such an oversight? So there are, there are threats. Now that's all we'll say about that for now. Uh, patrons, those of you who have the ability to ask us questions, you know who you are. We don't get a lot of those. If you want to do it, go for it. Absolutely. Uh, listeners, I'm going to let you in on a little bit of a secret. 
So the idea of doing an entire episode on the subject of fake fossils or hoax fossils is on the list. If you want it to happen, you can bump it up by making more requests for it. We are to the point where we have <laughs> enough requests on the list that we are now able to organize them, not just by when we got them, but by how many people have asked for them. So if there's a subject that you're thinking, oh, well, that's probably on the list, or I heard them say it's on the list, don't let that stop you. This episode had five requests, and that's why we did it when we did. Don't hesitate to tell us. But I think that is it for today's episode. It is indeed. Thank you to everyone for sticking with us. Thank you yes. to everybody who suggested this. Oh my gosh, thank you all. This was this was so exciting that it had so many suggestions and it was a fun one. It was a big one. I knew it was going to be a big one as I was taking the notes. I only touched on like two-thirds of the notes I took. Uh, yeah. there's, oh. But if you want to hear more, please let us know if there was something you... that was An itch we did not scratch. Send us a message and you can contact us in the usual ways. If you're interested in participating with the podcast further, feel free to jump on that Patreon and you will get bonus stuff from time to time. And we release our episodes fortnightly. So we will see you in two weeks. Yes, we will. Real real quick, little funny story. We're going to end the podcast on this. One time, a long time ago, I was typing up a thing and I was trying to type the word Cretaceous and I accidentally made a typo and it came out Cetaceous. And I said, wow, that sounds like a whale of a time. Ha! <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> I regret this whole episode because of that. <laughs> Scrap it. Start it over. <laughs> we'll do it live. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.